Well, on Sundays when I preach, and I'm preaching the, at the beginning of the day in the prison, I always have to warn the congregation, and I warn John, saying, John, if I'm late, don't worry, I'm at prison, I'm on my way. Because sometimes at prison, things timetables don't always fit. I always get out, but sometimes I get out a bit later than I thought I would. Today I was in good time, but I want to share a scene that was quite striking. So I had two services that I was expecting, but I had a third service which I wasn't expecting. So the first service preached, and um, I was using the parables of Jesus. So I told them about the parable of the persistent widow and the story about the blind man who cries out to Jesus. Jesus hears and Jesus stops. The second service, I was preaching about the parable of the Pharisee, the religious man, and the tax collector, the bad man, and how both went to the same place, the temple. They went to the, do the same thing, to pray. One left the same way he came, and the other was changed from the inside out. Well, after the services, I had some extra time, so I wandered around to different halls, and I went particularly to what we call the, the segregation unit. Well, the, the new name, segregation sounds negative. So the new name is the separation and reintegration unit. There's more separation than reintegration, but that's another story. But as I was there, I was talking to the officers, and they were letting one of the guys out for a shower. And I hear the shout, Bob! And I shout back, Jamie, how you doing? And Jamie says, I'm fine, Bob. I'm going to be out in three weeks. I say, Jamie, do you want to hear the sermon I just preached? I thought, of course, the answer will be no. He said, yes, I do. What did you preach on? And I said, I preached about two people who went to church. And one person went to church and came back unchanged. And the other person went to church and was changed from the inside out. And I said, Jamie, you need that change. And I said, because if you don't change... Nothing's going to change. And he said, Bob, you know what? If I go out, one of three things will happen. I'll either be able to stay out some way. I'm going to get killed. I'm going to kill someone. I said, Jamie, that's probably pretty accurate. One of those three things will happen. But I said, Jamie, if there's no change in your heart, there's going to be no change in your behavior. There's going to be no change in your life. God can change the human heart. And he was standing right in front of me. I, I pointed to which was the right side of his body. I said, no, that's, that's wrong. It's, it's there. I said, the heart has to be changed, Jamie, because if the heart isn't changed, your life isn't changed, and the outcome, the same outcomes that you're experiencing are going to happen again and again and again. So I ended up preaching an impromptu third service to one prisoner with the officers listening. Normally in this part of the jail, you can't really speak to people face to face, but the officers opened the door because I was speaking and there was a real connection because he knew that he needed help. And he knew that in and of himself, he couldn't change himself. Here we have a scene on the Isle of Crete. And these are people who need help. And these are people that can't change themselves. And I think the first step to realizing the solution is strangely to realize the problem. That's what I was talking to the kids about. You know, the problem for me then was quite obvious. 
I've got a deep puncture wound. I need to do something. And I told my sister what happened. She said, you've got to go to the hospital. I said, I know. She said, you want me to drive? You said, no, I can drive. It's not too far. But you see, sometimes the problem is so clear and the solution is so obvious that we do the obvious thing. But sometimes the problem isn't so clear and the solution isn't so obvious. So the first point I want to make is that the message of Jesus meets unusual people in unusual places. Now, you know how, generally speaking, we try to be positive. Well, I know I'm in Scotland. As an American, I tend to be positive. I tend to accentuate the positive, and maybe that kind of stands out within this culture. Now, if you were on the Cretan tourist board, your tagline would not be, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. That wouldn't be in the brochure. That wouldn't be in the advertisements. You'd talk about the beaches. You'd talk about the weather. You'd talk about the climate and all the magnificent food. But Paul says, here's the situation as it really is. There's a problem in Crete. There's a problem in Fife. There's a problem in Scotland. There's a problem in Edinburgh. And you see, the human problem doesn't really change all that much. 2,000 years ago, there's a problem of the human heart. And the Cretans and the Pfeifers and the Edinburghers and the Scots, they may or may not realize the problem, but the difficulty is, is they cannot solve the problem themselves. I was saying that to Jamie. I've known this guy, Jamie, for a long time. And I said, Jamie, you can't fix this problem. You can't fix your life because you've put yourself in a situation of a pattern, a pattern of action, a pattern of reaction, a pattern of behavior, and the behavior has very severe consequences. But I said, Jamie, I know someone who can change you, and he can change you powerfully. And you need that change. Now, the sad reality is working in a prison for 22, 23 years, the number of times that I have heard, have you heard about, and fill in the blank with the name, I said, no, found dead, murdered, found dead and overdosed. What, what, you know, the number of times that you're, people that you knew, people that you spoke to, people that might have sat in your Sunday services and you hear, this is what has happened to them. And I said, Jamie, I don't want that to be you. And I don't want that to be any of us. Because God meets us where we are. He doesn't meet us where we think we should be or where we ought to be. He meets us exactly where we are. Now, I'm a history kind of guy. I like glimpses of the past, but these glimpses of the past help me today. So in a couple weeks, I'm going to be preaching south, south of the border, just outside of Newcastle. Don't get many opportunities to preach uh, in England, so when I get invited, I go. But Newcastle reminded me, never been to Newcastle, but I'm going to go to Newcastle on the way to Hexham. There was a scene in Newcastle, this is about 250 years ago. There was a preacher who came to Newcastle for the first time. And this was his opening encounter. 
He said, we came to Newcastle about six, and after a short refreshment, walked into the town. I was surprised. So much drunkenness, cursing and swearing, even from the mouths of little children, do I never remember to have seen and heard before in so small a compass of time. Surely this place is right for him who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That same text I was speaking to the children. Jesus has not come to call the righteous. He's come to call sinners to repentance. And the preacher concludes, I'm in the right place. I'm surrounded by sinners. I'm surrounded by people who need help. Paul is saying to Titus, you are in the right place because you are surrounded by people who need help. Surrounded by people who cannot help themselves People who need change, but people who cannot change themselves. An unlikely place, an unlikely people, but exactly the right place and the right people for God to work. Because Paul gives a summary here. He says, these people, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. I think it was Abraham Lincoln who said, you can fool some of the people all of the time. You can fool all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. That might be true in politics, but when we bring God into the equation, we can't fool God any of the time. What they say and what they do don't match. And very often what we say and what we do don't match. Because Paul says they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. That is a significant and a severe conclusion to the matter. Liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, unfit for doing anything good. But you see, the message of the gospel is not the message of despair or hopelessness. It's not putting your hands up and saying, oh, what can we possibly do here? That scene that I mentioned a few moments ago about Newcastle, that was a Friday afternoon. On Sunday morning, that same weekend, the preacher wrote in his diary, I walked down to Sandgate, the poorest and the most contemptible part of the town, and standing at the end of the street with John Taylor began to sing the 100th Psalm. We sang that a moment ago. Three or four people came out to see what was the matter. 7 a.m., I could imagine so. Who soon increased to four or five hundred. I suppose there might be twelve or fifteen hundred before I had done preaching, to whom I applied those solemn words, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement or the punishment of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Observing the people when I had done to stand gaping, and staring upon me with the most profound astonishment, I told them, if you desire to know who I am, my name is John Wesley. At five in the evening, with God's help, I designed to preach here again. At five, the hill on which I designed to preach was covered from top to bottom. I never saw so large a number of people together, either in Moorfields or at Kennington Common. John Wesley preached routinely to 30 or 40,000 people. So he, this is quite interesting. You have a scene here 
drunkenness, swearing, cursing. What does the preacher do? He preaches Jesus. Paul says, you've got an audience here, liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. What are you to do? You preach Jesus. That brings us to chapter 2. Namely, the answer to the problem, and this is kind of basic, isn't it? You know, when you're, as a preacher, you do Sunday school lessons and you do sometimes object lessons or stories. And, you know, the classic story that's told, you're speaking to small children. You say, okay, children, what do we call the animal that lives in a tree and gathers nuts? Child puts up his hand. I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel. I don't want to be I don't want to be patronizing. I don't want to be repetitious, but the answer to the problem, whatever the problem is, Jesus. The answer to the question, whatever the question is, Jesus. It might seem like a basic Sunday school lesson, but Paul says, look at chapter two, verse eleven. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's the game changer. When I was growing up, mom and dad. We had two different front door mats, depending on which parent put out the mat. My mom, hospitable, warm-hearted, friendly, she would simply put out the mat with the one word, welcome. My dad, different personality, different character, he would put out, if he was the first to put out the mat, he had a mat that had two, two words, go away. <laughs> if you think, if you think the message of the Bible is go away, you're unlikely to open it. If you think the message of Jesus is someone else, you're unlikely to consider it for yourself. But if you think that primarily the message of this book is welcome, you might very well then open this book. Paul says the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. There's a, ch there's a chance here. There's a chance of real transformation. There is an opportunity here for hope. Because we're told it, namely the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the gospel appeared, mainly, namely, Jesus appeared. Jesus entered the scene. And the gospel, Jesus is the arrival of God's welcome. That brings salvation has appeared to all people. And when we come to know Jesus, we are able to say no and able to say yes. Now you might say we do that now. We can say no and we can say yes. But the problem is left to ourselves, we say no to the right things and we say yes to the wrong things. Whereas Paul says, when you come to know Jesus and when Jesus is teaching you, you say yes to the right things and you say no to the wrong things. You see, Jamie, in my illustration, real life, Jamie has the ability and has demonstrated he has the ability of saying yes and saying no. But for his young life, he has consistently said no to the right, to the wrong things, to the right things. And he's consistently said yes to the wrong things. And if his liberty brings that same pattern, the same outcome. And that's a real lesson about life. If you repeat the same pattern in your life, but expect something different, I've got bad news for you. 
If you repeat the same pattern, but you expect a different outcome, it's not going to happen. But actually, if you respond to this message, not even this message, this person, Jesus, real change can take place. We can begin to say no to that which is bad. We can begin to say yes to that which is good. And notice that Paul is saying here that it's all, it's all about Jesus. It's all about the arrival of Jesus, verse 11. And it's all about the return of Jesus, verse 13. He's come, and he's coming back. A preacher in New York City, Tim Keller, who recently passed away, put it this way. He said, the gospel is not the ABCs, but it's the A to Z of the Christian life. It is inaccurate to think the gospel is what saves non-Christians, and then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. That's not the message. The message of the gospel is not start with Jesus and finish with you, because that would be a message of despair, not a message of hope. Because if I start with Jesus and finish with me, I'm in trouble. I need to start with Jesus I need to continue with Jesus. I need to conclude with Jesus. Or rather, Jesus needs to start with me. He needs to continue with me, and he needs to conclude with me. And that's the key to Crete in the first century AD, or to Newcastle in the 18th century, or to Fife in the 21st century. We need Jesus to begin and to continue and to conclude. Now, I've been invited to preach today, but I've also been invited to lunch. John and Myron have made lunch for me. Now, I'm going to get their address. I think I've got their address. I'm going to get, I've got my sat nav, my, my Google Maps. Now, the address and the directions are great. But if I sit in my car outside their home, I cannot blame them if I leave hungry. I need actually to come into the house. So as a preacher, I can give you the directions. I can tell you about Jesus, but you need to see for yourself. D.L. Moody, a famous evangelist, uh, grew up in Boston area, lived in Chicago. He said doctrines, and we talk about doctrines here, are all right in their places. But when you put them in the place of faith or salvation, they become sin. If a man should ask me to his house for dinner tomorrow, the street would be a very good thing to take me to his house. But if I didn't get into the house, it would, I wouldn't get any dinner. Now, a creed is a road or a street. It's very good as far as it goes. But if it doesn't take us to Christ, it is worthless. So I can tell you what Jesus has done. I can tell you what Jesus is doing. I can tell you what Jesus will complete. But we need a personal encounter with Jesus. And when you have a personal encounter with Jesus, it's a life-changing encounter. Jesus meets us where we are, but Jesus doesn't leave us where we are. You see, the Cretans are liars, evil, brutes, lazy gluttons. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. But Paul says, when you encounter Jesus, our great God and Savior, Jesus takes this people who are unfit for doing anything good. And chapter 2, verse 14 says, Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself the people, 
that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So those who are unfit for doing anything good are now eager to do what is good. Those who are liars, evil, brutes, lazy, gluttons, they have been changed. Changed from the inside out. New character, new motivation, new desires, new goals, new perspective. So you see the point here. It seems like an unlikely place for anything to happen. But then you add Jesus, then you add the gospel, and things have now changed. Jesus changes everything. So when Jesus arrived, the welcome mat goes out. And when we respond to Jesus, something happens inside. There's purification. That which is unclean becomes clean. There's what's called redemption. We are all looking for certain things. We're looking for meaning, and we're looking for purpose, and we're looking for freedom. But the Bible tells us that sin is a profound problem. Jesus put it this way. He said, whoever sins is a slave to sin. There's no freedom. It seems like freedom. It looks like freedom. You can do what you want, when you want, how you want. But Jesus said, no, that's not freedom. Because sin brings slavery Jesus went on to say, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So this is an unlikely place for the gospel, unlikely people. But enter Jesus, and Jesus changes people from the inside out. The third reading that we had from chapter 3 introduces us to the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit again, is one of these game changers. Chapter 3, verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by every kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. The sermon that I preached this morning, the second and the third sermon, was about the good man who thought he was better than others. Paul is saying to Titus, we were exactly the same way as they are. There's nothing better about us. There's nothing superior. There's no place for looking down on others because we too, we were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We were enslaved. We lived in malice and envy. So you see, there's a great leveler here. The great leveler is this, that each human being has fallen and missed the mark. We, we are not the people, the men or the women that we are meant to be, that we want to be, that we ought to be. So Paul says there's no difference here. There's no, no place for pride, no place for superiority. We have experienced this change. And our plea and prayer is that they experience this change as well. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done. Remember, he has not come to call the righteous, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Rebirth and renewal. So there's two fundamental truths of the Christian faith. The truth which we call justification, which is what God does for us. Christ on the cross. We look to Jesus on the cross. He lived, he died, he rose again. We are justified by faith in him. 
That's what God does for us. But the second great truth is what we described as the new birth, that which God does in us, for us and in us. And here we see the work of the Holy Spirit is described as rebirth and renewal. And that's what each one of us so desperately needs. We need a new start. We need a new beginning. We've gotten the first go wrong. We need somehow, some way, that God can give us a completely new start. And he gives us a completely new start because the Holy Spirit, and this is, this is compl- I, 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 I can tell you, but I can't explain this. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died on the cross, and that event now impacts us now. He died, we live. He took our sin, we take his goodness. Now you think, very few historic events have an ongoing significance 2,000 years ago, but that one does. Now if that's not difficult enough to understand, somehow God, in his infinite wisdom and grace, has appointed his spirit, the Holy Spirit, that the spirit is poured out, but the spirit now lives in the hearts and lives of God's people. We have a new resident in our hearts, and that new resident changes us from the inside out, rebirth and renewal. The word for rebirth is a new beginning or an again beginning. The second word here, renewal, is a change from top top of the head to the soles of your feet, a complete change for the better. This is the message that Titus has. These are the resources that have transformed Titus and through Titus' ministry will transform the Cretan people. Because again, look at the outcome here. That first of all, we have renewal and rebirth, who be poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, who come back to Jesus, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So the Cretan people are unfit for doing anything good. Enter Jesus, and you have a people now who are eager to do what is good. Enter the Holy Spirit, and you have a people who are careful, who are devoted to doing what is good. That's the change that takes place. Christ on the cross, the Spirit in the heart of God's people, the change from the inside out, the transfer of my sin to Jesus, the transfer of his righteousness to me. So therefore, this is not an unlikely place or an unlikely people. This is exactly the place where the gospel is intended to be preached. And these are exactly the kind of people who are intended to hear. If I was a social worker this morning and I was interviewing Jamie... I don't have much to offer him. If I was a housing officer, if I was a count, I, I just don't have much to offer this young man. 
But with Jesus, I have everything to offer him because he's exactly the kind of person that Jesus has come for. Not the righteous, but the sinner. Not the wise, but the foolish. Not the able, but the unable. So that what I said this morning and what I say now, I have an audience of which I am part that is desperately in need of grace and salvation. That does not have the wherewithal to change, but God has provided all that is needed. Christ on the cross, the spirit dwelling within us. We are no longer unfit. We are now eager and careful and devoted to doing what is good. And if this is your story, that's your marching orders. You leave here and you do what is good. You do what's good in your family. You do what's good in your community. You do what's good in your place of work. You are now a witness. You are now an ambassador. And you're not only a witness by what you say, but you're a witness by what you do. Because a changed heart and a changed life is a powerful testimony to the one who changes it. John Wesley had an extensive preaching and teaching ministry. Wherever he went, he preached, you must be born again. And strangely, God accompanied that message with powerful change. Men and women, boys and girls, heard and received and responded, and lives were changed and transformed. That happened 2,000 years ago in Crete. Happened 250 years ago in Newcastle. That's happening today in Fife, in Edinburgh, throughout Scotland and to the ends of the earth. The same message, the same audience, the same problems, the same solutions. Christ and the Spirit. Watch out. When God begins to work, he changes us from the inside out. And the lives that we now live are dedicated and devoted to him. Let's pray.